This is the second tape in the series on the life of Joseph by Terry Virgo. Will you turn please to Genesis and chapter 39. For those of you who are here for the first time to tell you that this is the second talk in the series on the life of Joseph. Now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt and Potiphar, an Egyptian officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the bodyguard, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him down there. And the Lord was with Joseph, so he became a successful man. And he was in the house of his master, the Egyptian. Now his master saw that the Lord was with him and how the Lord caused all that he did to prosper in his hand. So Joseph found favor in his sight and became his personal servant. And he made him overseer over, over his house and all that he owned he put in his charge. And it came about that from the time he made him overseer in his house and over all that he owned, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house on account of Joseph. Thus the Lord's blessing was upon all that he owned in the house and in the field. So he left everything he owned in Joseph's charge. And with him around he did not concern himself with anything except the food which he ate. Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. And it came about after these events that his master's wife looked with desire at Joseph and she said, Lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, with me around my master does not concern himself with anything in the house and he has put all that he owns in my charge there is no one greater in this house than I and he has withheld nothing from me except you because you are his wife how then could I do this great evil and sin against God and it came about as she spoke to Joseph day after day that he did not listen to her to lie beside her or be with her now it happened one day that he went into the house to do his work and none of the men of the household was there inside and she caught him by his garment saying, Lie with me. And he left his garment in her hand and fled and went outside. When she saw he had left his garment in her hand and had fled outside, she called to the men of her household and said to them, See, he has brought in a Hebrew to us to make sport of us. He came into me to lie with me and I screamed, and it came about when he heard that I raised my voice and screamed, that he left his garment beside me and fled and went outside. So she left his garment beside her until his master came home. Then she spoke to him with these words, The Hebrew slave whom you brought to us came into me to make sport of me. And it happened as I raised my voice and screamed that he left his garment beside me and fled outside. Now it came about when his master heard the words of his wife, which she spoke to him, saying, This is what your slave did to me, that his anger was burned. So Joseph's master took him and put him into the jail, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. And he was there in jail. But the Lord was with Joseph and extended kindness to him and gave him favor in the sight of the chief jailer and the chief jailer committed to Joseph's charge all the prisoners who were in the jail, so that whatever was done there, he was responsible for it. The chief jailer did not supervise anything under Joseph's charge, because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made to prosper. Let's pray. Father, it's such a wonderful privilege for us to be in the presence of our great King and to hear your voice. We thank you, Father, for words you've spoken to us already tonight, full of significance and meaning to our lives. We thank you that you've delivered us from dumb idols to serve a living God who speaks to us. And Father, as we're together now, we ask in the name of Jesus, the one who has made all this possible, that you will continue to speak to us now through your word. 
that again we may not simply hear the words of a man but from the depths of our being we should be conscious that God before whom all things are open and nothing is hidden is speaking to us powerfully oh prepare us to be the people you would have us be and cause your word to be very fruitful in our lives tonight we pray in Jesus name Amen I just want to remind you of why we're looking at the story of Joseph in these days together at the Bible Week. This because, as I said last evening, that we see in Joseph, I believe, one who can be seen as a type of the end-time church. God said in his word, in the last days I will pour my spirit upon all flesh and your young men shall see visions and your old men shall dream dreams. And here we find in Joseph a man who sees visions and dreams dreams and has a testimony which he shares with his brothers. Sadly, his testimony is rejected and he has to pay the price for his vision. And we shall see on another evening, as it says in Psalm 105, the word of the Lord tried Joseph, that he had that vision in his spirit and it cost him a lot to have such a vision. He knew God had spoken. He knew God had done a new thing. He knew God had broken in and shown him something. But the very vision cost him everything. He found that he was cast out. But the very action of being cast out, though it was through envy and jealousy and bitter resentment, yet somehow, even in that, God was over it. And we see in this story, the story of a God who is over the nations, over the great events, and yet also over tiny details of timing. A God who is wonderfully present, though sometimes in the story looks terribly absent as Joseph goes through one pressure after another. And then we see at the end God's great purpose to bring Joseph forth, not only to save him, but to save and bless all his brothers and indeed to save the world. So there's a beautiful picture, I believe, of what God is doing by his Spirit today in bringing a people through. But we see tonight something of the experiences that Joseph had to go through. He was chosen. He was called by God. God had laid his hand upon him. Nothing could take away from that. But that doesn't mean that Joseph was ready for everything. Just because God has called us and we know in our heart that his word has come to us, doesn't mean we're immediately ready to stand center stage to fulfill some great calling. There's got to be a preparation program. And God tests and tries his servants to bring them forth in his ultimate time, the right time in his heart and will. And we begin to see in this evening's story how this young man begins to cope with the pressures. And there are two great lessons out of this evening's story. The first one really is how does this young man cope as he has this terrible experience of men turning against him, throwing him out, when perhaps he could say in his heart, well, I was only true to my vision. I only shared what God showed me. Now look at me. Now I'm separated from my mother, my father, my brothers, my home. Here I am in another country, and it's all so unjust. And I'm here as a slave, and I have no rights, and I have no future. The whole thing is so unkind and cruel. He could have been completely wrecked by that one experience. But we see in this chapter, right from the beginning, a most wonderful statement that there Joseph became a successful man. That's a very simple statement, but a wonderful one. He became a successful man. Although his circumstances were so awful, yet he prospered because God was with him. Now what does that tell me about Joseph? It tells me several things. It tells me that he refused to live in the past. He utterly refused to carry into his situation a bitterness about what his brothers had done to him. Many people have their whole lives spoiled because they are still carrying with them something that happened in the past. They carry in their heart 
the way such and such a person spoke to them, and sometimes from years ago, the way they treated me, I'll never forget it. And many a person carries deep within their spirit this horrible root of bitterness. And they wonder why their Christian life isn't successful. They would pray, they would seek the baptism in the Holy Spirit, they would study the Word, but in their spirit is this real anger and bitterness about what happened back in their past. And it spoils them. And it destroys the work of grace in their lives. But we don't see that with Joseph. We see a young man who doesn't seem to be sitting around saying, if only, if only. you like that this evening? Are you looking back and saying, well, if only that hadn't happened, all would have been well. If only they hadn't treated me like that, I could be on course. But I'm not going to let go so easily. I'm going to hold in my heart my real anger toward them because they treated me so badly. Sometimes people carry in their heart the big question, oh God, why? Why did you let this happen to me? Why have you put me through such pressures? And sometimes we, we want things unraveled. We want God to explain everything to us. But I find again and again in the scriptures that men and women whom God calls and chooses, they go through all kinds of pressures and they don't always find the explanation. And they have to learn to leave it with God. They have to learn to say, Oh God, thou knowest, I'll go on with you. And I, above everything else, pray that tonight, in this first part of the word, that we shall find that those of us who perhaps are carrying about our person chains of resentment to the past, that we'll leave them in this tent tonight. That we'll go out and we'll say, Oh God, I don't understand it. I don't know why she broke my heart like that. When I thought that we were going to get married, I don't know why you took that one from me. I don't know why when I gave everything and then that job fell down. But you're going to say tonight, oh God, I'm just going to leave it. I won't carry that with me anymore because I want to say to you, if you carry things in your spirit against God or against your brothers or your sisters, however much you apply yourself to other things in prayer, the word, the baptism of the Spirit, trying to get into worship, you will never come into all that God has for you. You will never have this written against you. He was a successful man. She was a prosperous sister. It won't happen. Because that root of bitterness will spoil everything. It's utterly essential that we leave the past behind. Joseph had plenty of reasons to be bitter, but he utterly refused to be bitter. How do we get free? Well, I believe we do it by a deliberate decision. As children of God, we deliberately decide to forgive. Because God has given you grace to do that. God has shown mercy to you, a sinner. You've got absolute grounds for forgiving. And indeed, there are very awesome words that Jesus has declared to help encourage us in that. Jesus says, For if you forgive men their transgressions, your heavenly Father will forgive you. But if you do not forgive men, your heavenly Father will not forgive you. Jesus taught us to pray a prayer which we very rarely uh, pray publicly, perhaps in the way we used to in many of the churches these days. We don't often stand and pray together the Lord's Prayer. But I believe we ought to remember that Jesus said, this is how you ought to pray. And whether we declare it publicly or not, it is a framework for prayer, Jesus told his disciples. And so we should be praying regularly, in as much as it says, give us this day our daily bread, we should be praying it regularly, and we should be saying this, Forgive us our trespasses. Lord, please forgive me. And this is the way, Lord, I want you to forgive me. Please forgive me in the same way that I forgive them that trespass against me. That is what we should be praying. When you say, oh, Father, forgive me my sin, this is the way Jesus taught us to pray, that you should be able to say with all confidence, oh, God, forgive me just like I forgive. Will you take the discipline of praying that prayer like that? And really saying it to God, Lord God, I'm sorry about that, but Lord, you know the way I forgive. Please take my example, Lord. This is the way I forgive, freely. 
Now please forgive me as I forgive. That's what we're told to pray. Now when that gets into your heart, when you understand that is exactly what the New Testament says, it makes you very forgiving. It makes you very merciful. If you say, oh, Father, forgive, and this is the way I do it. You know the way I do it, Lord. I keep very short accounts. I let people off the hook very easily. Lord, remember? <laughs> Make a decision to live like that. You can do it. And don't say, well, I'm only human. You're not only human. You're one who's found grace in the eyes of the Lord. You've been forgiven much. And Jesus teaches quite clearly and plainly that for a believer to hang on a resentment to somebody else is an outrage before him. He tells a whole parable about a man who was forgiven so much and then demanded his rights on some very small debt. And as that one is discovered by the one who had released the great debt, he is outraged, utterly outraged, that this one holds on some petty thing. And Jesus makes it very plain that we don't have to seek grace. We don't need some special touch from God to be set free on this sort of thing. We don't need prayer from the preacher afterwards. Just forgive, please. Because you're a child of God. And the Spirit of Christ is within you. And if there's one thing Christians should be good at, it's forgiving people. It should be your strong suit. You're very good at forgiving. It's a deliberate decision. We just say, oh God... I forgive. I've got to do it before you. You know it hurts, but I just forgive. That's how we do it. We do it by a deliberate decision to let go. Can I ask you at the outset of this word this evening, do you know that you have resentment towards somebody? Some church, some group, perhaps they told lies about you. Perhaps they said about you that you were spreading your new teaching there. And they said, you know what he's saying, don't you? He's saying everybody here has got to speak with tongues or else they're not really Christian. Or they've said something you know you didn't say and they've twisted it and turned it and they've turned people against you and you've been thrown out. And you think, oh, how cruel they were. Now I want to say to you, please just put it down and say, oh God, I forgive everyone who sinned against me. That's the first step. A clear, simple decision. The second step is this. That you maintain that stance by an attitude of faith. There is one verse in the New Testament that the whole story of Joseph exemplifies. And it's Romans chapter 8. The famous verse 28. We know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God to those who are called according to his purpose. That's the most marvellous verse. It's one of the most glorious promises in the whole of the scripture. And the story of Joseph so underlines that truth. We know, Paul says, that God makes all things work together for good. Now, do we know that? We know it, Paul says. Now, there's a great difference, as God said to us in prophecy earlier on this evening, there's a great difference in hearing with these sort of things, hearing the word, but it not being mixed in our hearts with faith. And so it doesn't bear fruit in us. But if this scripture can be mixed with faith in your heart, it will bear glorious fruit. That we can say with all our heart, we know all things work together for good. Now, when we know that, we can go through the sort of experience that Joseph went through, or you can go through the trial you've gone through and you can say, Father, I don't see how people could even treat me like that, but I just believe you're behind the whole thing. I receive it. It says in Psalm 106, when they believed his word, they sang his praise. Do you believe his word? Do you believe that God makes all things, all things, such a big statement. All things work together for good. It's one of the great truths that should make Christians absolutely shine in the world. That where men have their hearts failing them for fear. And as Joseph stood out somehow in this household, I'm sure that he had hold of this truth somehow in his spirit without even read Romans. But we've got the New Testament. We know the end of Joseph's story. He didn't even know the end. 
except he had this word in his heart, he had this vision. But we can see the end of these things. We have the encouragement of the scripture. And we have this clear word of promise that all things work together for good. That's how we can forgive. That's how we can leave the past behind. Because we say, Father, we are somehow mysteriously and miraculously living on a completely different plane. That somehow you're making things work together for good to those who are called of God. Those who love him. You in the good of that? Do you sing his praise? Those who believe that sing his praise. There's something in their spirit that causes them to just keep on having a well of water springing up because everything's working for good. Now, we've got to believe that all the time. Be anxious for nothing. Straight command. But by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, make your request known to God and the peace of God which passes all understanding shall keep your heart and mind. That's what God has promised. Because with that confidence that God's on the throne. And that's what changes us and transforms us. And so we maintain it by, first of all, we forgive and forget. Then we maintain our joy and peace by believing God. And then we become lights in the world. Would you turn please to Philippians in chapter 2 and see what Paul says here. Philippians 2, verse 14. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent, children of God above reproach, in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you appear as lights in the world. That's to be the characteristic of the saints. So often we think, Lord, make me shine. Give me a testimony. Make me to have a testimony at work or wherever it is you spend your days, at school, at college, at home, in the shops. How is it that we're to shine as lights? It's very clear. We're in the midst of a world that is complaining. All the time complaining. Negative. But if it's been a fine week, they say, oh, it's probably bound to rain. The weekend's just coming. They think like that. All the time they complain about the money situation. They complain about the bus being late. They complain all the time. They complain about the tea. They complain about the management. They complain about the men. That is the constant noise that we hear. Ungrateful. Now, one of the ways in which the church shines as light, we often think, oh Lord, I'd like to go out and preach the gospel on the corner. Let me go out and proclaim Jesus in the streets. This is the way we shine as lights in the world here. Do all things without grumbling and complaining. That's enough to make you shine today. That's all you've got to do. Remember it all the time. Let's exhort one another all the time. Husbands, wives, parents of Christian children. Let's stop one another in our tracks and say, hey, wait a minute, do all things. I said that to my son. He's not keen on washing up sometimes. Now, look, son, are you a Christian? Yes, Dad. Right. Do all things without grumbling and complaining. It's very simple. That's what makes us to shine as lights in the world. Children of God, without reproach. It's so simple. It's so basic. And we find here, with this man, Joseph, that... Those around him noticed that he prospered. What was it that made him stand out from others? Surely it was that he was like this. That he had learned in his heart to give thanks and everything. He'd learned not to be a complainer. Are you characterized by being a complainer? There are two languages in the world. There's the language of the complainer. And then if you get into Zion, there's the language of Zion. Thanksgiving and praise and glory. And then there are those believers who live on the border. And they've learned some of the language of outside Zion. God wants us to get right into the heart of Zion and learn the language of Zion, which is to give thanks, to do all things without murmuring and complaining. To see that it's utterly basic to our Christian lives. And that just by doing that will make you different at work. It will cause you to shine. 
It will cause you to have a testimony. And this was how Joseph continued in his life, shining bright. And there, his master, Potiphar, looked on and he thought, My word, this young man, he seems so different to all the others. Look at the way he lives. Look how he shines. So he wasn't just living in the past. Nor was he living in the future in a dreamy kind of way. He wasn't saying, well, when I get out of this situation, I'll prove God. And this is another of these snares that we get into. We're either regretting the past, or else we're thinking, well, when this situation changes, I'll be able to really prove God. When I get away from home, when I get to university, well, boy, I'll, I'll get away from home, I'll get away from mum and dad who don't understand, and there I'll get with other Christians, and we'll really be a testimony. And then when we get to university, well, I've got to get through my degree, haven't I? Better get the work done, this Christian union meeting, then there's the church. Well, when I get through university, wow, boy, I'll really go for God. And then you meet someone, and you think, well, perhaps after we've got married, when the situation changes, and so often we can be like that, we think, well, the situation at the moment is so restrictive. Later, I'll be fruitful. Later, I'll prove God and bear fruit for him. Sometimes we think, when God begins to move mightily by his spirit, boy, what will be then? That day, somewhere around the corner. But this man, he bore fruit while he was in the house of his master, the Egyptian. And there he shone. And there he lived for the glory of God. Some of us think, if only I could be full-time. That's the answer. I know I've got a call. Other people don't recognize that yet. But I know I've got a call. And until when I get full time, it will change everything. Well, this man was locked up. And he bore much fruit. And God wants us to see that, that part of the training program for this young Joseph, before he can suddenly burst upon the scene and fulfill the calling, which certainly was his, he had to prove God in the small locked up situation. He had to be able to bless in the place where he was. And it says about him that the Lord was with him and his master saw it. Has your boss noticed something different about you? In your office, have they noticed that about you? That it's different since you came. Not just that you're rather a pain in the neck, that you don't enter into the jokes and you don't do the things they do, but somehow there's a prosperity coming about things. Things are going more smoothly. I believe we should believe God for that. That in our businesses, in our work situations, in the school situation, wherever it is, in the hospital, wherever we work, that somehow we can say, oh God, I'm here as your child. Please cause there to be a prospering because I'm here. Let even the heathen see it. Let them benefit from it. Let them receive something because I'm here amongst them. And it takes a wonderful step-by-step -step development here. It says his master saw it. And then it says the Lord blessed Potiphar's house because of him. And then it says, as Potiphar gave him more and more responsibility, that the Lord blessed all he owned because of him. Is your work situation getting blessed because you're there? It's part of the important training for this end-time church that we are part of as individuals. Would you just turn into Luke's Gospel in chapter 16 and we'll just see what Jesus says as definite principles of the kingdom of God. Luke chapter 16, verses 10 to 12. He who is faithful in a very little thing is faithful also in much. And he who is unrighteous in a very little thing is unrighteous also in much. If therefore you have been faithful, if therefore you have not been faithful in the use of unrighteous mammon, who will entrust the true riches to you? And if you have not been faithful in the use of that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? Three statements there which Jesus gives as laws of the kingdom. And that which has got to become really part of our, our thinking and our way of life. 
We have to be faithful in the little thing. It would be no good for Joseph to be saying, well, I've got to serve around this awful place. I shouldn't be here in this prison, but one day when I get out of here, boy, they'll see what I'm made of. One day I'll get out. One day they're all going to bow to me. One day, meanwhile, I've got to look after this awful house. Meanwhile, I'm locked up into this. Oh, I despise the whole thing. I'm not worthy. Of, this isn't worthy of me. I'm resenting it all. No, rather the opposite. That as we look at the little thing and do it faithfully, God takes note of that. Again, he who is faithful in the use of unrighteous mammon, those things which have got nothing to do with the kingdom, this is one of the snares of super-spirituality. We say, well, this has nothing to do with the kingdom of God. It's, it's so unimportant. It's just my job. I want to be out serving God. We, we would rush off a little before the end of time so we can get to a meeting, take time off work, do all sorts of things because, oh, well, it's just the ordinary job situation. It's not the kingdom. I want to get out to the kingdom. I want to get to the meetings. And God says, I'm looking for diligence and righteousness while you are dealing with what he calls unrighteous mammon, just ordinary things. God wants us to be diligent there. It's part of our training. God's going to cause this church to come super right into the centre of the stage, right through to take authority and to bring wisdom to the world. That's the end of this whole story. Joseph is going to suddenly come forth with great authority, great wisdom, ruling, bringing forth a kingdom. God's going to do that with his end-time church. There's going to suddenly be a wonderful breaking forth of the church and the testimony of Christ. And God is looking upon many a life. He's saying, now does this one qualify to have authority in my church when she breaks through? When she comes right into her full flow. And God is watching. How do you treat the odd hour here, the odd hour there? Are you faithful are you faithful at work? Do you do a good job? Or do you think, oh, this is awful, I want to get away? God says, you'd be faithful in unrighteous mammon. And then he says, if you've not been faithful in the use of that which is in others, who will give you your own? David looked after just a few sheep. They weren't his, they were his father's. But he did it so meticulously, so carefully, so responsibly, that God lifted him from just those few sheep and said, now you shepherd my nation. You shepherd the whole people because he was so thorough. He was so wholehearted. Now, this is what we see with Joseph. That there he was, he was locked up, but in that situation, he was faithful. Now, as we are rejoicing in newfound worship and praise and spiritual gifts and a whole new dimension, don't kid yourself that God isn't interested in these character things that he wants to work into us. He is watching us all the time. He's seeing how you react as to whether he'll give you true riches, whether he'll give you that which is your own. And he'll say, right, that's yours now. Now you have it. Father, you're giving me real responsibility now. Yes, I am, son. I've watched the way you've done it. I've watched the way you've looked after that little house group, those 12 people who come. I've noticed you've not lusted to be the one who's speaking to the hundreds. I've watched the way you've cared for those twelve. I've, not, I've noticed the way you, you've seen when some are unwell and don't come. I've noticed how you've done it. Now, here's something which is yours. God's doing that all the time. He's watching us. And that's how it was with Joseph. So he wasn't just looking back, nor was he just dreaming of the future. He was living in the present all the time and using it as a great training program. Are you doing that? That's what God wants of us. So, he's winning through. He's making it, this young man. But then into this picture, suddenly comes another whole angle of attack. We don't live just on a neutral situation. We live in a life where Satan has many ways of attacking and undermining Many different disguises that he can put on to attack us and bring the work of God down. And so we read this horrific story, and yet somehow such a relevant story to the days in which we live. As Potiphar's wife comes on the scene, suddenly this young man, away from home, 
away from the restrictions that home had upon him, he's becoming successful. He's becoming handsome. He's becoming prosperous. He's entering into a new dimension. And suddenly, a new area of temptation hits him. Potiphar's wife suddenly turns her eye upon him. And we see that while he's working there in the home, this woman is alone and available to him and is willing and it's all in secret. And suddenly this young man is exposed to a whole new area of danger. I believe that as we are talking about the church in the end time and seeing Joseph as a type of it, it's very significant that this is one of the areas of great danger in the world today. Perhaps as it's never been before. That here we can lose the whole of our testimony. All that God's preparing us for, we can jettison in a moment of time. Because all around us, there is this temptation to be spoiled, to be ruined. And we, believe, we can see here the different ways in which this temptation came to Joseph. It was real, it was powerful. This probably attractive woman, this woman who had power and authority, suddenly sees him as being attractive to her. And wants him as her plaything. She wants him for herself. And the whole thing is sudden and outrageous. Suddenly, quite openly, come lie with me, she says. And this young man is suddenly encountering something he's never faced before. Suddenly, it's a quite an outrageous, shameful thing. She just blurts out, come and lie with me. Horrific nature of that, when sin suddenly is on, in front of you. And that's one of the awful, powerful things about sin, that it comes suddenly to us and can offer to us immediate fulfilment. And that's why it's so powerful. It comes and says, I can satisfy you now, immediately. And it can be so powerful that it ruins a whole life in a moment of time. And so we find Esau, back in the Old Testament earlier, that he comes in from the field and, and he says, oh, give me some of that red. That's what he says. Literally, he wants some food. His flesh is crying out for fulfillment. His flesh comes above his spirit utterly. And in that moment of time, his flesh cries out, I want to be satisfied and I want it now. And that expression of Esau so sums up the longings of the flesh. Give me some of that red now. And Jacob says to him, it'll cost you everything. It'll cost you your inheritance. He said, what do I care about my inheritance? Give me some of that red now. That's what sin is like, especially the sin of the flesh. It says, I can give you immediate fulfillment now. And suddenly, you're into a tremendous pressure because all that you know of God's calling upon your life and all that's spiritual and all that's real, suddenly it fades and the flesh cries out for immediate fulfillment. And this huge tug of war is on. And this young man is invited to have immediate fulfillment. Esau failed miserably. He says, who cares about spiritual things? I want it. I want it now. Sudden, outrageous temptation. We find that happens all too easily today. Young men leave home, go away to college, to university. Suddenly, they find that the temptations they'd never faced before suddenly are upon them in a way that they, they've never seen it before. It's all so easy now. It's all so possible. There's no one else around. There's no restriction. Suddenly, the power of it. Not only was it sudden, it was sustained. It says, day after day, she entreated him. Day after day. When you look into this closely, you wonder, this man Joseph was so godly. Day after day. He wasn't like Samson. Samson withstood at first. But when it was day after day, he yielded. Prolonged pressure. Not only was it sustained, it was subtle. He sa it says that he would not lie with her or be with her. In other words, it was 
another alternative. But if he wouldn't, well, actually come to bed with her and lie with her, well, why not just be with me? In other words, we don't have to rush wholeheartedly into something that will spoil, but let's just uh, carry on a bit more. Subtle. And we find that that is often the case today. That people say, well, let's just go further anyway. Let's get into something. We, well, we'll be careful. We won't go as far as really something outrageous, but we'll, we'll go into an area where really in our heart we know we shouldn't be. And there was that subtle alternative. And the subtlety also of him knowing in his heart, well, she has got authority through her husband. Perhaps she could get me out of this situation. Perhaps if I go along with her, she can pull some strings to get me out of this whole situation. And also the awful sense of being unloved and lonely and away from home. Other people didn't love him and now suddenly this woman desired him. Suddenly she was showing him attention if nobody else would. The whole power and subtlety of it which can come in and, and insidiously argue against us as we would put up our defences. The devil wants to break through. He keeps on and keeps on. And we're living in days of such pressure coming against us to make us throw away our purity. Not only was it sudden and sustained and subtle, but she said, there's no one here. It was secret. No one else will know about it. Just you and me. No one needs to know. And that's the subtlety of sin too, that it says that no one else will know. Just you and me. No one's looking. No one can see what's happening here in the dark between you and I. The truth of the matter is, all heaven is looking on. All heaven is watching this young man, called of God, right in the centre of God's will, going on, although it is through great pressures and difficulties, he's right in God's will for a glorious future, a wonderful future, fulfilling the purpose of God. And, and he can think, well, there's no one looking, and in fact, all heaven's looking on to say, will this young man make it? Or will he throw everything away in one moment of foolishness? And the devil wants to say to us so often, well, no one can see. And we, when we think like that, we forget that God is with us all the time. If I make my bed in hell, thou art there, we can't hide from God. Everything is open to him. We can't fool around with God. He sees the whole thing. And so it's not secret at all. All heaven is looking on. And let's be clear about this. God knew that this was going to happen. God allows temptation to come to us. We shall never be free from temptation. It's no good saying, oh, my New Year's resolution is I won't be tempted this year. There will always be temptation. Even Jesus was tempted. And God allows temptations to come to us to see what is in our heart. It says in Deuteronomy 8, that God said, I led you through this wilderness to see what was in your heart. And God allows us to be in situations that reveal what is actually in our heart. That when no one else is looking, when there's no restriction upon us, when no one else need ever know about it, it's in secret. All heaven's looking on to see what is in our heart. God wants to change us in our heart. Not just outwardly, not just that we keep the rules of the church while we're there, that we obey certain external rules. God wants to change us utterly from within so that we're like Jesus. Jesus who loved righteousness and hated iniquity. He actually did. He didn't say, well, in my heart I love sin, but I'd better keep back from it. He hated it. He was gloriously free from its power. And God wants to work that into us. And we see with the Old Testament that this company was led through the wilderness so that God might see how they would react. What was in their heart. And sometimes God has allowed us to come into a situation where we've felt the power and the pressure of temptation. And God is watching to see, is this young man 
is this young woman ready to go through with me into the next phase? Will they obey me when no one else is watching? Will they obey me when no one else knows what they're doing? Only I know. God's watching us all the time on that basis. And that's what he's doing in Joseph's life. Now how did Joseph overcome it all? Because God wants us to be overcomers and we need to, need to know how. How did he do it? Well, first of all, he did it by being the total opposite to Eve in the garden. Somehow, although God had said to Eve, you can eat of any of the trees, you mustn't eat of that one. Yet somehow when the devil came to Eve and spoke to her, she'd already got taken up with that other tree. And she was available somehow, she was open to it. But Joseph's attitude was absolutely different. When Potiphar's wife spoke to him, he said, he said, your husband has given me everything else. He's not withheld anything from me, only you. You're his wife. And so his attitude, unlike Eve, Eve seems to be think, forgetting the other trees and saying, oh, if only I could have that tree. Joseph said, thank God he's given me everything else. Everything else. And I believe it has its roots back in that attitude I was speaking of earlier, that we can say, oh, thank you, Lord, I can receive all things without grumbling, without complaining, that essentially our whole attitude to life is one of thanksgiving, praise, acceptance of all that God has given. So that when some other thing is offered to us, we're already fulfilled. We're already accepting from God what he's graciously given us. That that is our essential attitude to life. I believe people who are bitter, who feel that things are not all that they could be, and that no one loves me, they're far more vulnerable to this kind of temptation. Because they're, they're longing for some kind of joy, some expression that they can find fulfilment in. I believe that if we can be like Joseph, but he's given me everything else. It's only right he should withhold you. He was enjoying all that God had given. We're to be like that. That was the first thing. He had a good attitude, a clear attitude, on a broad base to his life. Secondly, he called what she offered what it really was. He said, why should I do this great evil? This great evil. And we've really got to start calling a spade a spade in this country today. Because this is one of the cunning things that the world wants to bring upon us. It wants to change the terminology. It wants to talk about free love. It wants to talk about children born out of this love children. It wants to talk about indiscretions. It, ought, it, it wants to change the whole terminology so that somehow it's all acceptable and it's all very modern and it was all meaningful and, well, the two were really loving one another. It's only wrong today if you don't love one another. But if for a moment of time at that particular setting you felt you had an attraction for one another or certainly if you felt that perhaps one day you might get engaged and married, well, obviously, it's all go. And that's the accepted thing today. And I have a burden in my heart as I bring this word tonight, knowing that in this tent, vast numbers of young people are in this church of the end time, seeing visions, dreaming dreams. Young people, even younger than the ones here tonight, have been baptised in the Holy Spirit in the children's meetings. They're entering into a new dimension. They're this end time church coming forth. And they're living in the midst of a crooked, perverse generation. And this generation is saying, come lie with us. Just come and be with us. It's the accepted thing. Everybody else is doing it. Why should you be the only girl in the class who's kept herself clean? Who are you Christians? That's old hat. That way of living. Just come and be like us. And that's going to be one of the strongest pulls to these lovely new Christians coming through today. Come lie with us. Come and be part of us. Come, come and be like we are. Why are you so black and white, you people? Why do you hold on to these old-fashioned ways? And this is the way he answered. He said, this great evil, 
And we have got to be a people who speak plainly and say, it is a great evil to do this. And it's not just free love, and it's not just meaningful. It is a great evil. We've got to see that in other areas of life, not just physical, sexual sin that this woman was inviting him to, but all the compromise that's round about us. The stealing that goes on at work, which is regarded as commonplace. That people just take things out. That whole companies today work a basis in their accounts according to the amount that will be stolen from them by their employees. It's all worked into the accounts now. The amount that will be stolen, taken away in pockets and backs of cars and all the rest of it out of the factory. It's the way of life now. Everybody does it. And the voice comes out to us and says, come on, come and lie with us. We find it's inflicted every area, right into sport. We find the professional foul. It's just cheating. It's spoiling. It's robbing us of the joys of true sport. The whole moral fibre of our nation's going down, down, down. And the world would say, come and lie with us. Why do you have to be so different? And there's the devil behind that. There's an antagonism. There's a whole desire to spoil this Joseph. To spoil this end time church. Come and lie with us. But he called it a great evil. He called it what it was. And he saw also that it was against God. Why should I do this great evil and sin against God? A generation that's losing all its signposts is a nation that's forgotten that sin has to do with God. Sin is a religious word. It's not just that I sin against my brother, that I sin against my sister, that I might spoil their lives, but it's against God. And that's what gripped David in the end. When he sinned, he said, Oh God, it's against you and you only that I've sinned. That he knew in his heart that terrible conscience that was crippling him from then on. He couldn't get away from it. He said, oh, I've lost my joy, I've lost everything because of what I did. And he knew it was against God and God only. He said, oh, restore to me the joy of my salvation. Cleanse me. Get me back with you, please. Because although the devil wants to offer us immediate satisfaction, he doesn't tell us about the terrible anguish and conviction that's going to follow. He doesn't tell us about the sorrow and the terrible condemnation that goes with it. It's against God that we sin. And Joseph was so clear about these issues. He said, it's a great evil. It's against God. That's the sort of church God is going to bring forth. And beloved, the pressures of the world are so great. I want to say to you, as young people especially, get right out and right into the kingdom of God. Don't dabble. Don't get on the edge. Don't listen to their ways of thinking. It is utterly wrong. It is as different to you as light and darkness. And we've got to get right out and drink in God's ways and his holy kingdom. Otherwise, we shall not come forth as this church. We may glory in our visions, but we shall be disqualified. We shall not be what God wants us to be as the Joseph that comes forth. He was steadfast. Day after day he refused. And then when he was absolutely cornered, when he could so easily have said, well, I couldn't help myself. She, she just got hold of me in the end. I couldn't help myself. I, day after day I, I maintained it, but in the end, well, she forced herself upon me. He could so easily have done that. This man was tried utterly. As I've been meditating in this the last week or two and thinking through this scripture for these days, it so stirred me how deeply this young man was tried. Outrageous, immediate, shameful approach. He got through that. Day after day approach. He, he maintained his stance day after day. What could he do? Could he tell his master? He couldn't. Could he just run away? No, he couldn't. He was a slave. He was shut in. What was he going to do? Day after day, he must have gone saying, Oh, God, help me today. Because he was shut into this situation. And I believe there are some girls here who feel shut in like that, in some situations, where they work or where they live. 
And they feel, oh God, how, what can I do about it? If I speak, I'll expose the man before his wife. I believe we get into those sort of situations because of the evil days in which we live. And suddenly, we find that she's upon him. She's grabbed him. She said, come on, come lie with me. It could be so easily then said, well, I couldn't help it. I had to go along with it then. That, that was it. I, I'd withstood. But even then, he is so clear. He's so holy. He's so righteous. He flees. He runs away. He won't have it, even at that final test. He is totally triumphant. How heaven must have rejoiced. How heaven must have praised. How the angels must have looked on as they saw this test day after day and wondered, oh, will this young man make it today? Will this young man get through? And then to see it come to this terrible climax and all heaven looking on, will he yield? And he flees, he runs out, he gets out. And great rejoicing there must have been in heaven. He's come through the test. He is vindicated. I believe God wants to say to us, are you that clear in your commitment? That when the world says, come, lie with me. That was true in the early church even. When they refused to offer their little sacrifices to the false gods. And they, the men of those days would say to Christians, come, just a little sacrifice, just offer something here towards the gods. And you can read accounts of the early Christians that they could have just offered a little sacrifice. And they could have said, well, we still believe in Jesus. And they say, yeah, that's all right, you can have him as a god as well. But essentially, you must worship our gods too. And often their lives... And whether they would forfeit their lives and die was just simply on whether they would be black and white and clear and say, no, I, I can't offer even a tiny little sacrifice. Or in the days of the Reformation, when that great mighty church of those days said, no, you must, you must go the way we say. And the mighty reformers said, no, we can't go along with that. We can't yield on those issues. We don't believe that's what happens when we break bread, as so often the issues turned on some small, apparently, matter of doctrine, but which was at the heart of the whole of the doctrine of justification by faith. And that mighty church said, come on, come and be with us. Why do you hold so firmly to those truths? Come and lie with us. Come and be with us. Come and be part of us. So this voice comes to us again and again. Will you compromise? Will you be with us? Will you be part of us? In this economic climate, the world in so many ways says, come on, come, lie with us. Even the church today, as we have seen our vision, if we've seen what we must go after, the very beautiful church of today, even as we've seen it on television today, in all her beauty, she'll say, look, come on. Come and lie with us. Don't be so committed to that vision. Don't be so after those dreams and visions and all that God wants to do. Can't you see how beautiful we are? Can't you see what we can produce in our beauty? Come and be with us. Forget your vision. It's very powerful. Come and be part of us. And this man said, I must be true to my vision. I must be true to my commitment. I must go right through with God. And this man paid the price ultimately. But he refused, it says. That's the statement you can write over the whole thing. The world saying, come, lie with us. Uncleanness saying it. Economic situation, cheating at work. Even religions, and come lie with us. But part of this young man's training was this. He refused. It says in Titus, the grace of God has taught us to say no. Has the grace of God taught you to say no? It's not just a law saying, thou shalt not. Look at Titus chapter 2. It says, the grace of God has taught me to say no. But he refused. What happened to him as a result? 
I recently saw a film, it's a very gripping film, called Chariots of Fire. You may have seen it. Beautiful film, really. About two young men, great athletes. One of them, called Eric Liddell, went over to race in the Olympic Games, only to find that the heats for the 100, year, 100 yards was uh, <laughs> to, be run, <laughs> to be run on the Sabbath. And uh, for him, his conviction was that he couldn't, he couldn't run on that day. That was his conviction. He was true to it. And he said, no, I can't take part. And it's the most gripping and exciting story as this man refuses. And though pressure is brought to bear upon him and authorities come against him and the Prince of Wales is brought in, that particular Prince of Wales, and he says, now come on, listen, you forget that. You, you forget these things. You, you come this way. Surely you should honour your country and do what uh, we would like you to do and run on the Sunday heats. And this man... He's so true to his convictions. He says, no, I won't do it. I won't do it. And then they suggest that instead of running the 100 meters or 100 yards, he should run the 400 yards. And the story goes on in a very gripping way that that's not his distance, really. He's a 100-yard sprinter. But he says, all right, I'll run the 400 yards. And then as the story builds up to its climax, the young man is out there ready to run the 400 yards. And someone comes over to him with a piece of paper. And on this piece of paper it says, Those who honour God, God will honour. And he clutches the piece of paper in his hand. And the 400 yards race takes place. The gun goes and off goes this sprinter. And it's tremendously exciting. And he thunders right round. And of course he wins the race. And uh, even the world can understand this. Uh, Ray told me he saw it up in London and at the end of the film everybody stood up and applauded because, oh, isn't it marvellous, this man was true to his convictions and what happens? Well, he's lifted up shoulder high at the end he's carried out triumphant he won the race, he was true to his convictions that's what happens when you're true to your convictions look at Joseph, he was true to his convictions look what happened to him his coat was torn from him he was ridiculed this Hebrew you brought in here, he's thrown into prison. Not everybody who is true to their convictions gets carried shoulder high for the world to say, whoa, look at this giant. Look at this man. God's honoured him. Won the 400 metres. Tremendous. God didn't promise Joseph anything. God didn't say to Joseph, now, if you're true to me, in this testing, I'll make you next to Pharaoh. He didn't promise him anything. He just said, walk before me and be perfect. And Joseph isn't carried out shoulder high as the one who was true to his convictions. He's ridiculed, he's lied against, he's thrown into prison. But he's right on course in God's program. The world doesn't understand it. The story looks a terrible tragedy. But boy, is heaven rejoicing. Heaven's dancing for joy. He's on course. God's great redemptive program is on course. Oh, how often heaven must look down and say, here's another one of these young men, these young women, going through part of this corporate Joseph that's going to come forth. And they look down, they see a young man. Oh no, he's going to be trapped. Ah, he's spoiled. He's cast away, he's missed it. Other times, heaven looks down and says, oh, he made it, he made it. Beloved, we've seen a beautiful thing on television today. A great king, or a future king, taking his bride to himself. The tragic thing that's been in our papers in recent months is that he had to look around for a girl. He had to find one who was young. He had to find one who had got no indiscretions in her past. This is the sort of thing that's been in our paper. Wanted to find someone who was still pure in the days in which we live. Worthy to be the bride of the future king. Our great saviour is seeking a bride. He's seeking a bride who can come forth clean and pure and holy for him. Isn't he worthy? 
Isn't he worthy of a people who when the world says, come and lie with us, we refuse because we've got a vision that's greater than that. Amen. We've got a calling that's greater than that, a purpose that's greater than that. And we call sin what it is and say, oh God, by your grace, we'll overcome. Even if it means we run away, we look stupid, we're ridiculed, God, it's for you, not for the world to see. We will live for our great heavenly king. We'll be pure for him. We'll be glorious for him. Because although last night we rejoiced and praised and said, oh, thank you, Lord, you've chosen us to be seers of visions, dreamers of dreams, we're going to come through, we're going to have a testimony. All the other side of the coin is this. God's looking for such a people to be clean, holy, pure, before they can emerge like that. And God will put us through the trial and the test to bring, him, bring us to himself. Or that God might write that deep into our hearts and make us that kind of a people so that we can reach the end of the story and be that corporate Joseph that emerges for the salvation of many.